The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and uh, open them to uh, Exodus chapter 2. As we continue walking through Exodus, as you turn there, let me just uh, ask you a question. Do you know what I mean uh, when I use the term helicopter parents? You know what I'm talking about? Not a helicopter whipping. Uh, those were the ones where the child never got away and you just held their hand and you're going in circles as they're trying to run away. Um, but uh, a helicopter parent is, is someone who's constantly hovering over their children. Now, uh, I've prepared, I think we've got those. We got those, David? Uh, some, some comics this morning. Um, I, among other things that I wanted to be when I was growing up, I wanted to be a garbage man at one point in my life, um, uh, I wanted to be the next Randy Travis at one point in my life, and, uh, and then I was a little more serious about wanting to be a, uh, uh, a, a cartoonist. Uh, in fact, I, later in high school, I thought I would pursue this as a career, not knowing where that would go. Uh, I think I was really just kind of running from the Lord and wanted to do something that, that I enjoyed, but uh, I've prepared, prepared some comics for you this morning. I didn't draw these, but, uh, but these, I think, will illustrate the point of, of uh, helicopter parents. Sometimes parents can hover over their kids to the point where they smother them and, and won't let them. This, this, uh, this comic, son, there's a world out there ripe for the taking. You better stay home with me. Um, that's kind of illustrative of what a lot of parents kind of have that attitude of, I've got to, if, if they're going to do anything, then I've got to do it for them. Um, Helicopter parents are those that pay extremely close attention to the child's experience and their problems, uh, particularly so at, at school. Any teachers in the room know this? Uh, and and it, it happens in elementary school all the way up through, and it's happening more and more on college campuses where their, their baby goes away to college and, and parents will hover over their kids to the point where they, they are calling professors when they don't like the grade their, their baby got. They'll call maintenance and complain about the, uh, the mattress in their dorm room is too lumpy. Can my, can my child get a new mattress? They'll call the president of, of the college wondering this and wondering that. These are helicopter parents. Their babies can do no wrong. Look at this one. Uh, this is uh, kind of telling the story that I just told. It used to be, and I don't want to sound like that guy who's ill. It used to be back in my day, but in, in 1969, that wasn't my day. I wasn't born yet. But in 1969, there was, an, there was a, an understanding that parents and teachers were on the same team in order to raise the child. And if the child made bad grades, then the parents and the teacher would look to the child and say, explain these bad grades. Well, now it has totally flipped. And now when the child makes bad grade, it's not on the child. It's the teacher who's at fault. And this is what, uh, these, these are helicopter parents. American college administrators began referring uh, to parents as helicopter parents back around 2000. Um, in this millennial generation where their, their parents began to call and complain and, and kind of do everything for them, it, even down to the fact of calling their children every morning in their dorm room to wake them up on time so that they could get to class. Uh, these are helicopter parents. Um, look, at, look at this next one. This is kind of an illustration of this. Uh, yes, mother, I told you I'm doing fine on my own at college. Hey, 
could you log on and find my schedule, order my books, and call me when it's time for class? And, and I, I think if we're not careful, this is kind of where we're going. If, at the University of Georgia, there's a professor there named Richard, Richard Mullendore who blames the, the rise of the cell phone uh, for the explosion of helicopter parenting, and he calls the cell phone the world's longest umbilical cord. Uh, I think there's probably some truth to that. And, and then one other one that I found is, is this one. If chickens raised their young the way helicopter parents raised their kids, then this is kind of what it would look like. The chicken would never get off the chick, right? Now, I illustrate all that. I don't normally give you a lot of illustrations. I kind of let the word do the thing. But I wanted you to kind of understand where I'm coming from. Parenting in, in this day and age has become something that is really not what God intended. And I want us to look today at sort of a, 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 a sideline that happens in this text today. I want you to see the heart of the text and understand what Moses is saying as he writes here in Exodus chapter 2. But I think there's a real sideline here that we've got to understand. We're going to understand that God has a plan for your kids now, you may be sitting here today and you're thinking, wait a minute, I don't, I don't have kids. Well, that's okay because you're part of a faith family that has lots of kids. You may be sitting here today saying, well, I'm a grandparent, my kids are gone. Well, you have grandchildren that you can pour into. You have, again, a faith family that has lots of kids. You may be sitting here as a kid today and you may be thinking, how does this sermon apply to me as a teenager or, or as a child? Listen, you're going to hear today in this me talk about how parents should, should respond to their kids, but hear in this sermon also, kids, for you, an impelling call on your life. I want you to hear this, that it goes well beyond this, this issue of, of what society says parents and children should be like. God has a different plan. I want us today to, to find yourself in one of these and understand that, that God has a plan for your kids. Let's, let's look at our text today, and we'll, we'll jump right in. Uh, let's begin in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Read, read along with me. The Bible says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of, uh, made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant, sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages." So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now today, I, in walking through this passage, again, I want you to hear 
what's happening here in history. We're not looking at Exodus as, as a, a sort of made-up story, uh, the way that, that Hollywood or others will treat this. Many of you know there's a, there's a movie coming out about Exodus. I didn't know about that movie uh, when, when I planned to, to do this, this sermon series. But uh, I, don't, I don't know anything about the movie. I don't know how accurate it will be. But chances are they will treat it more like a story rather than like history. But we're not, we're not viewing this today as a story. We're viewing this as history. We believe that this is, these are real events that have happened under God's sovereignty as he's led his people to become a nation that will one day produce the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So I want you to, I want you to hear the history in this, but I want to do this in this vein of God's plan for your kids. Uh, three points and two points of application Uh, as we walk through this today. First point is this. God causes beauty to grow in ugly places. God causes beauty to grow in ugly places. The reason I say that is because as we read in in verse 1 of chapter 2 about this couple coming together to marry and have this child, it comes directly on the heels of verse 22 in chapter 1. Verse 22 in chapter 1, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, the, the most powerful leader in the world, the king of Egypt, when he gave this command, it had gone well beyond the, just the midwives now, trying to have this secret plot of killing the, the Hebrew baby boys. Now, since they rebelled against him and, and did not do what he had asked them to do. Now he's, he's bypassed them and he's come out of the closet, if you will, and there's no longer this secret plan to kill these Hebrew boys. Now he's gone public and he has asked everybody who is part of his kingdom to, to participate in this. It, when they come across a Hebrew baby boy, they are to take that baby boy and to throw it into the Nile to kill it. This is exactly what's going on. And if you, if you let yourself feel the weight of what's happening here and know that this is a real event, don't you think that this would have impacted the decisions of young men and women who were dating and courting and heading toward marriage? Don't you think that some of them would have put that off and certainly put off having children in the middle of this because... Who would want to bring a child into the middle of such an evil time? I think this is probably some of the reasoning that was going on. We, we know that God continued to grow his people, and the people continued to, to grow and multiply, even in the midst of all of this oppression. But here in the middle of this, we have one particular child that is highlighted for us, and his name is Moses. But, but I want you to see that probably what's going on is they're saying, why would anybody want to bring a child into this. I won't have a child. Imagine the angst of a couple, of a, of, a, of a mother who is pregnant, waiting for nine months, this child growing inside her womb. Imagine her angst as she waits to find out if it's a boy or if it's a girl. Because if it's a boy, Egypt will kill him. Allow yourself to feel that for a minute and let that sink in. And just as in that day there was evil towards children, I think in this day there is as well. I don't think anybody's coming and saying, let's throw them into the Nile, but certainly we look at things like abortion 
We look at around the world, we, we, we see how now tests are being able to determine certain things about the baby while it's in the womb, and decisions are being made to kill the baby based on gender in certain parts of the world or based on certain genetic traits that are detected in the womb. When the, when the baby is, goes to full term and comes into the world, certainly we look around and we say, this world is so evil. And probably many out there, maybe there are some students among us who are one day saying, why would I ever want to bring a child into this world? Well, hear me. God causes beauty to grow in ugly places. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, this man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. See, God's people continue God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Even in the midst of ugly, dark, evil times, God's people still continue to obey God. The mandate to be fruitful and multiply had not been lifted when, when God's people continue to, to obey God and follow this mandate to be fruitful and multiply, they do so, and in, in so doing, they display who their real Lord is. Those who were still having children at this time were, were saying, Pharaoh may be over me in some respect, but my Lord is the God of Israel. In, in doing so, in continuing to follow the mandate of God, they trust that God doesn't change his strategy based on the enemy's attacks. In so doing, they know that God makes beauty grow in these ugly places, and they trust the Lord to bring something beautiful out of something so entirely ugly. Now, there's a, there's a couple of things we need to address here in this passage. One is, why does Moses feel the need to tell us that his parents were Levites? Why, does, why do we need to know that his, his father was a, a, of the tribe of Levi and his mother was as well? Why do we need to know that? Because it gives us a clue. The, the early Israelite who would have read this or heard this later on, when, when they heard that his parents were Levites, they would have immediately made the connection some years later after the law had already been delivered, they would have made the connection that he is qualified to be a priest. Therefore, he's qualified to bring the law. And later, Moses would indeed bring the law. We'll see that as we walk through this book together. But he is, God is, I believe, setting him apart for some special service, as we'll see as we walk through this, to deliver the law, to serve the people's spiritual needs, to deliver Egypt from or Israel from Egyptian bondage should remind us of the genealogy of Jesus. Here, when Moses is said to be of the tribe of Levi, we look at passages in Matthew and in Luke, and it's said there that Jesus is from the house and the lineage of David. When the Bible does that, when it, when it points to a specific tribe in the lineage, it is pointing to something beyond the individual. It is pointing to the fact of what God is doing through them, what he's going to do. Just as Moses was born to be this priest who would serve his people and deliver them and deliver the law, Jesus would be born to be the true king, the one who was greater than David, who would deliver them from the oppression of this world. Well, it also says in this, these first couple of verses that when 
Moses' mother, we learn later her name is Jochebed, when, we, when, when she sees Moses, it, it says here that when she saw that he was a fine child, it literally means, well, the, the New Living Translation translates it not fine, but the New Living Translation says that when she saw that he was a special baby. The, uh, the Amplified Version says when she saw that he was exceedingly beautiful. Now let me ask you a question. What mother upon seeing their baby for the first time, has not thought, they're so special. They're exceedingly beautiful. I mean, you can walk into a hospital room and that baby will be the ugliest baby you have ever seen in your life, right? And let's be honest, babies sometimes are kind of funky looking, right? But the mother will think it is the most beautiful creature that has ever graced the earth, right? Beautiful, special. So what mother has not thought this? Is that all that is being said here? Is, is, is what's being said here that Moses' mother simply sees him and says, Oh, he's so beautiful. Oh, he's so special. Is that what's being said? Is this simply affection on her part? Or is there something more? If we look at the original language, it implies that it's more than just the mother's affection. I mean, are, are we really to believe that, um, that as the, the text here says, that when she saw that he was a fine child, a beautiful child, a special child, that she hid him away for three months? Are we to believe that if he would have been ugly to his mother, that she would have just chucked him in the river? I mean, what mother would do that? No mother would do that. I, I don't think that's what's being said. But if you look at the original language here, you see that the word for fine is the word good. It's the same word that is used in the original creation when God looked at what he had made, when he, caused, when, he, when, he, when he created light, and he said, it is good. It's the same word. And, and I think Moses here is doing something for us. I think the Holy Spirit, through Moses, is connecting what God is doing even in the beginning. There was something in Moses' tiny little face that connected him to, to God's plan to deliver them and, and give them a, a recreated new beginning. When Moses here connects it to he was good, he's connecting it to what God was doing from the beginning. Now, your child is not Moses. Those of you here with, with children, your child is, is not Moses. He was not created to be the deliverer of Israel from Egypt. But Nevertheless, he is called to be on God's plan. He may not be Moses. He may not be the deliverer of Israel. There may be times when it is hard for you to look at your daughter or your son and say, oh, God's got a special plan for them. You know, when, when they do something just really, really goofy or really, really just you go, hmm. Not sure. I think he got that from his, from his mom. You know, you kind of blame it on the other person. And you say, I, I just don't know that, that God could use this person. I want you to hear, to hear me say, your child, our children, God has a plan for their lives. Now, this is not, this is not just psychobabble to say God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. I want you to hear the greater plan that, that God has for the lives of our children, for your children, for my children. In Christ, they may not be Moses, but in Christ, they are to be priestly deliverers in a broken and a captive world. 
I, I say this based on the, the scripture that we have inscribed on the wall out here in our, in our foyer. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, God causes beauty to grow in ugly places, and you may be sitting here today saying, oh, you don't know how ugly and messed up my family is. You've just come off of a Thanksgiving dinner where it was indeed ugly. There was a blow-up at the table. Someone did indeed, they didn't remain sober. It was ugly as all get out. There was a fight. It's always a fight. You say, you don't know how ugly my situation is. You look around at the world and you say, yeah, but it's such a dark time. To which I would say to you, where does the light seem brightest? Doesn't the light seem brightest in the dark places? Your children, my children, our children are called not simply to to go to school and get a degree and get a job and, and, and find a spouse and have some grandkids. That's not only the purpose of their lives. The purpose of their life is is similar to the purpose of Moses. They are to be these priestly deliverers who bring the good news of the gospel into places where it is not yet known. As as your pastor, I want our kids to have this mentality of, my life is not for me. I want you as parents and grandparents, I want us as a church to have this mentality that our kids, that not just our kids, but us, that our lives are not for us. That it may be an ugly time, it may be an evil time, but God has put us here. God has given us means to take the gospel into places where it does not yet exist. God causes beauty to grow in ugly places. Oh, that as parents and as members of an extended faith family, that we might see the beautiful generation that God is growing in the midst of an ugly culture. Wasn't it great last week? Was it last week that we brought the shoeboxes in? Wasn't it great last week to see all those kids come pouring down this, those, these aisles to, to bring 174, is that right? 174 of these shoeboxes to, to take the gospel all around the globe. Wasn't that great? Are y'all here? Y'all have had too much turkey, and and you're a little sleepy this morning. Um, But it's great to see this generation, but I pray that we would see it more and more and more, that our kids are not ours, but they are God's. The title that I've given this sermon this morning, God's plan for your kids, is a little bit said with tongue in cheek because they're not really our kids to begin with. They are God's. Yes, they are gifts from Him and they are on loan from Him. We are to steward them. We've been placed in their lives to to point them, but ultimately they are His. And I pray as much for your kids as I pray for my own. My daughter sitting over here, my son sitting over here, as much for them, I pray that, that God would capture their lives and captivate them so with the gospel that they might use their lives to make much of him to see the beauty of the gospel grow in dark, ugly, evil places. Oh, that we as a church would get a hold of that.
that here in the beginning of Exodus, where Pharaoh has issued this decree, kill all the boys. He's not just enlisted the military to enforce this. All the people that are his, not just the Egyptians, possibly even, probably even, calling on his Israelite slaves to kill their own. Oh, that we would see this. The second point this morning is this. God often sends his children right into the enemy's crosshairs. God often sends his children right into the enemy's crosshairs. In in verses 3 through 5, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a a, a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds of the riverbank. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. I want you to see, I want you to hear, I want you to feel what's going on here. Moses is now placed into the very crosshairs of the enemy. He has the, the, the laser dot on his forehead. And this is where God is sending him. He's placed into the very river that is meant to kill him. You see that? Throw all the boys into the river, filled with crocodiles and, and hoping that they would drown. Throw them into the river. He's placed into the very river meant to kill him. Who finds him but Pharaoh's own daughter? The daughter of the tyrant who has ordered his execution finds him. We don't know at this point that she's going to have pity on him. Don't move on to verse 6 before you let verse 5 sink in. Who finds him but Pharaoh's daughter? Miriam, Moses' sister, must, her, her heart must have been in her throat as she sees Pharaoh's daughter of all people come to this river and bathe in this place where her tiny little brother is in this basket. Eventually, as we then move past verse 5 and we go all the way through verse 10, eventually Moses is going to be brought into the very home of the one who's trying to kill him. See, we, we've, we've so sanitized what it means to follow Christ that we think it should never cost us anything. But sometimes God sends his children into the very crosshairs of the enemy. Is this easy for me to tell you? Absolutely not. But this is reality. As we read this as years of hearing the story, I've, I've often thought, what in the world was Moses' mother thinking? What would lead a mother to take her three-month-old baby and place him in a basket and put him in this river? What is she thinking? Well, all we know that the text tells us is that it had reached a point where she could no longer hide him. Because three months old, babies do what babies do. Cry. And the crying must be getting louder. It must be getting more frequent. There are historians tell us that that throughout this this region where these Israelites, these Hebrew slaves were were living, that that there would be sweeps through these towns all throughout the day. They happened in the daytime probably because at night it would be harder uh, because of light issues and that sort of thing. So sweeps would come through during the day looking for these babies. And it, and it wasn't just these Egyptian guards that, that were, were supposed to kill these babies, but now it's everybody. 
It's all of Pharaoh's people. So what is she thinking? Well, maybe she's at a point where she doesn't know what else to do. She knows they're coming and making sweeps through the day. So maybe in her mind she's thinking, if I, if I take him and I put him in this basket and I cover it with, with, with bitumen and, and, and all this and I waterproof the thing and I put it in there among the reeds to where he'll be sort of out of sight and the, and the flow of the river, the, he won't be taken out in it, but, but it will make enough noise to cover, to muffle his crying. The sounds of the town will, will help muffle his crying. Maybe I can send Miriam and she can sit there on the, on the riverbank and she can watch him. Maybe she's thinking that if, if I can just place him here, there will be no chance of them coming into my home and finding him and throwing him into the Nile anyway. Maybe she's thinking that she can now take this, her, her baby, take Moses, and she can put him in the river by day, and she can bring him out by night, and she can care for him by night and put him back in the river during the day, and he will remain hidden, and she will somehow save his life. We don't know exactly what she's thinking. This is speculation from different commentators and historians, but maybe that's what is happening. It could be that she has reached a point where she knows nothing else to do, where she's at her, the end of her rope. She cannot hide him any longer, and she realizes the only place to turn him now is over to the Lord. And she says, look, if he's eventually going to be thrown in the river, at least, at least I can be the one to do it. And she takes him and she thinks, I'll obey Pharaoh's command technically. Pharaoh never said anything about a life preserver. So I'll throw him in the river myself and I'll place him in a life preserver and I'll turn him over to God and let God care for him. We don't know exactly what she's thinking, but I think we'd be hard-pressed to think after three months this mother is at a point where she said, I'm through with this, this child. I think she desperately cares for him and this is an attempt because she doesn't know what else to do and she turns him over to the Lord. There's a little clue in this, just as the word good was a clue as to what she saw in him. There's a little word here that also gives us a clue. If we look back at the original language, the the word here for the basket that she places him in is the same word, ark. This is the, the only place that this is used is here and in Genesis 6 through 9 in the story of Noah and the ark. And possibly she's, she's remembering this story and remembering how God preserved and saved Noah and his family by placing them in an ark, taking them through these waters and bringing them out on the other side. Maybe in her mind she's committing him to the Lord and saying, God, I don't know what else to do. I'm trusting him to you. The one thing I know is this. I believe God is the one leading her to this. I believe it was surely a struggle, something she wrestled with. But I think God is leading her to this. I think God is doing two things as he does this. He's, number one, weaving this common thread through the story that he'd been telling all along so that we would would pick up on this common theme as we watch it all throughout the Old Testament and being carried out throughout the New, that God is working redemption from the beginning. That what he started in Genesis 3, he's carrying out. We see it in Noah, and we see it here in Moses, and we will see it further as we walk through the story of the Bible. 
I think that's one of the things that he's doing. He's weaving this common thread to see that he's the one who saves. But the other thing I think God is doing when Jochebed, Moses' mother, places him in this basket and puts him in the river is I think he's providing for us a picture of what one day Jesus would do. That Moses is placed into this river of certain death only to be pulled out alive. And I think we must see here that Moses provides for us a type or a picture of what Jesus would do when he would be placed into certain death of the cross but then come out of the tomb three days later. This is the common theme. This is what God is doing all the way through. This had to be one of the hardest things that Moses' mother would ever do in her life. When she placed him in the river, by the way, notice that it says that she placed him there. Pharaoh had used the the words, throw them in the Nile. She places him in the Nile. She cares for him. When she placed him in the river, at that point, she doesn't know that he's going to be okay. I mean, don't, don't move forward in the story without seeing that. It, it took such an act of faith for a mother who loved her child but did not know what else to do to place him there in the river. Had to be something that she was wrestled with. And it provides for us a great truth. She must have feared the worst. Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary wrote this. When she gently laid the baby down, she was tucking her heart inside the basket. It was the kind of thing a mother could only do by faith, but then she was indeed a woman of faith. Having received her son as a gift from the Lord, she turned him back over to the Lord in faith. Jochebed would hardly have sent her daughter along to watch if she had expected her child to be murdered. Think about that. If you expected your child to be murdered, would you send your other child to watch it? If it seemed like she was abandoning him, it was only to God's loving care, as every faithful parent must do. Just as God sent Moses into the enemy's crosshairs, sometimes he sends them, uh, in, in, sends our children into dangerous territory as well. Sometimes he does that because... He has a particular person or a particular people somewhere in the world, maybe somewhere locally, but somewhere he has a particular person or people that he has set his heart on to save. And your child, possibly you, are the one that he is calling to accomplish that task. Sometimes, though, He sends our children into dangerous territory because it's not someone else that needs to be saved. He understands that the only way that they can be saved is by sending them into a place where they have to truly engage their faith, where they have to trust the Lord. I mean, how else will they know that when they cry out to God, even with an innocent cry of an infant, that he will indeed rescue This will be one of the hardest things you will ever do as a parent. I've read this before, but I want to read it to you again. Adoniram Judson, who is uh, sort of the father of modern missions, um, when he was getting ready to leave and go to India, he was dating or courting uh, a young lady, and he wanted to ask his, uh, her, her father if he could 
marry her and take her away to India to reach India with the gospel. And he he did this in a letter to her father. He wrote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen, saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. This is a letter written to a father wondering whether he could let his daughter go. Her father said yes. This will be one of the hardest things as a parent you will ever have to do. This will be one of the hardest things as a church we will ever have to do. But remember, one commentator said, however frightening an experience it was for Moses himself, who was crying when they found him, he was never safer than he was in that basket. Alexander McLaren said, God's chosen instruments are immortal till their work is done. If God is calling your children, my children, you then there is truly nothing to fear because we are immortal if He's calling us until the work is done. Around that, Alexander McLaren goes on and says, around that frail ark, half lost among the reeds, is cast the impregnable shield of His purpose. All things serve that will. The current in the full river, the lie of the flags that stop it from being borne down, the, the, lie, uh, the hour of the princess bath, the direction of her idle glance, the cry of the child at the right moment, the impulse welling up in her heart, the swift resolve, the innocent diplomacy of the sister, the shelter of the happy mother's breast, the safety of the palace, all these and a hundred more trivial and unrelated things are spun into the strong cable wherewith God draws slowly but surely his secret purpose into act. Listen, this is hard to preach because I have a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old myself. But God causes beauty to grow in ugly places. May our children take the beauty of the gospel into the crosshairs of the enemy if God were to so call The crosshairs of the enemy may seem desperate here in this story. They are no less desperate in various places of the world today. Christians are martyred every day in our world. There are Christian students in high schools here in South Carolina, in Spartanburg, in Greenville County, who are not martyred physically, but that are 
outcasts socially because they stand for Christ and they stand with Christ and they live for the gospel. But may we see that our kids are not our own, but they are His. May we see that it's not just our kids that God may call. May we see that it may be us as well. Third point is this. I know I'm running late. I'll run through this as quickly as I can. Third is this. God often works through unlikely means. To round the story out in verses 6 through 9, Pharaoh's daughter, she finds the basket, is brought to her. She opens it. The, ba- the baby's crying. She has pity. She says, this is a Hebrew child. Miriam, crouched on the bank, trying not to be seen, suddenly pops up with the wit that could only be given to her by the Spirit of God visiting her for a special moment in time, and said, should I go get one of the Hebrew mothers to nurse the child for you? God turns the heart of Pharaoh's daughter, and she has pity on this child. And yes, go and get her. Miriam goes and gets her own mother, Moses' own mother, and brings her to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter, in, in a miraculous, so gracious way that only God could get the glory for this, Pharaoh's daughter said, if you'll take this child and nurse him, I'll pay you to do so. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Jochebed, Moses' mother, Miriam's mother, would have gladly done this for free. Now she's going to do it not only out in the open, but she's going to get paid by Pharaoh to do so. Who else but God could do that? God often works through unlikely means. If you read through this, there are so many things that just don't happen. Nobody gets the credit for these except God alone. And what I would say to you is, God causes beauty to grow in ugly places. He often sends us or our children, His children, into the crosshairs of the enemy. But in the middle of that, He works through unlikely means in a way that only He gets the glory. It's an amazing truth. As we trust God with our children, with our own lives, we should always remember that God is always with those who belong to Him. That He's always working out His plan and He's always working all things for good for those who love Him or are called according to His purpose. It may not always turn out good as the way we would see it, but it will indeed be for our good. Here, two points of application quickly, and I'm, I'm through. Number one is this, as we read through this text and we see all these things that are true of what God's doing in the birth and miraculous preservation of Moses, number one is this, Children held too tightly in your hands miss out on the opportunity to be held by His. Children held too tightly in your hands miss out on the opportunity to be held by His. When she could hide it no longer, she took for Him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. She reached a point where she realized, I can no longer hold on to him. And she placed him in the hands of God and trusted him to to God. And God indeed held him. 
children held too tightly in your hands miss out on the opportunity to be held by his. Second point of application is this. We have precious little time to wean our children to the Lord. There came a point where not only did Jochebed have to, have to give her child up once, but she had to give him up twice. She placed him in the river the first time. The second time, after being paid to nurse him and to raise him, to wean him, she had to then take him and give him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And her own child became the daughter of Pharaoh's daughter, or the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses was a boy. Um, he became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. She had to give him away twice. She had in that time, while she was paid by Pharaoh to nurse him, in that day and age, children were, were nursed three to four years. She had somewhere between three to four and a half years to have that child on her knee, to have that child at her breast, to pour into that child and tell that child the things of God. To tell that child to trust the Lord. I believe Moses was going to go on and he was going to be trained in Pharaoh's court and he was going to be trained in linguistics and, and all, the, all those things of the day. He, was, he would have one of the best educations anywhere in the world. But I believe those first three or four years of his life were just so crucial. Here's what I would say to you. As parents, as grandparents, as a church, she had three to four years. How long do we have? Children's ministry is crucial. Youth ministry is crucial. Parenting is crucial. We have precious little time to point them to the Lord. I've watched parents through the years of being a youth minister. I've watched parents who when their child comes and says, I believe God's calling me to missions. I believe God's calling me to be a pastor. I've watched parents say, oh, no, 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 that's not our plan. And to call them back from following the Lord. Oh, church, may we never be guilty of that. May we never be guilty of leading our children away from the Lord. May we do everything we can to point them to the Lord, to give their lives, to pour out their lives to the glory of God. God's plan for your kids may look radically different, but in the end, it is indeed the best plan. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I don't know how to wrap this up or, or close this sermon this morning. God, I, I know that you have got a radical call on the lives of those who are yours. Sometimes, Lord, you send us into dangerous places, but God, you will use us in a way that brings glory to you. You will protect us. You will keep us. Sometimes that doesn't look like we want it to, but God, we trust you. I pray, God, that in this room, Lord, that we would trust you. Lord, I pray as a parent myself, Lord, that you give us the grace of trust to give away our children to you. Lord, I pray for grandparents and those who don't have children in this room, Lord, that we would invest in the kids that you bring our way in this church, that we would point them to you. Lord, for the kids in this room, for those that are listening to this sermon, Lord, I pray, God, that you would, Lord, stir within them a call to 
use their lives for your glory. Lord, I pray, God, that you would, would continue to make beauty grow in ugly places, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I don't know how you need to respond to this. Uh, maybe, maybe you've heard the Lord in a particular way calling you, and, and you just need to talk to somebody about that, and what does that look like. I'll be glad to talk with you. I'm going to be seated right down here on the front. If today you're here and you came with an emptiness in you and you've heard of how Jesus went to the cross and came out of the tomb, then today you know that you know, you know you need what Jesus can offer. You're tired of, of pursuing happiness and fulfillment on your own. You realize that there's something broken in you and you need to trust the Lord as your Savior. I'll be here. I'd love to talk with you. If you just need to pray with somebody, there will be people that will be in the prayer room, out that door, around to the left. They'd love to pray with you. Whatever it is that God's calling you to. Maybe you want to pray for your own kids. Maybe you just want to write here right now, or your grandkids, or pray for our kids as a church to say, God, it's scary and it's dangerous, but Lord, we want to trust you, Lord. Make us a people that follows you. Maybe you want to just pray that way. Whatever it is the Lord's calling you to today, be obedient. Respond to the gospel, to the grace as he calls you. Let's worship our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.